Well, perhaps you may be seated. Perhaps you have already uh, divined, guessed, ascertained. We're going to start a brief study of what has been called the doctrines of grace, what have been called the doctrines of grace. And I'm going to start a, a brief introduction to this topic with um, something of a biographical note, a personal uh, sketch here. I was a young Christian, just about a year in the Christian faith, went off to college at the University of Delaware, and there, I, as a young Christian, I was looking for fellowship. Where will I meet fellow Christians in this secular campus, uh, which, well, you know, secular campuses was a Christian desert, as it were. And there, in the ground floor, I was on the second floor of, of uh, um, if I recall, it was Russell C. Dorm. On the first floor, there was a, a one of the rooms had a fish sign, Ichthus, on the door. And I knew enough to know that that was a Christian symbol. Uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, is what Ichthus, the acronym, meant in Greek. And so I knocked, I got up my courage, I was a very shy young man, got up my courage, knocked on the door, and uh, introduced myself, got to know these uh, the, the two men there, and one uh, had, was a twin, his twin brother was also leading a Bible study in this dorm room, which I joined, and little did I know what I was getting into. Uh, a couple weeks later, as I was walking across campus with the twin brother, Joe, he stopped, he looked at me, and he asked me a question. Are you a tulip man? I thought he was talking about flowers, you know, it was the day of hippies and flowers and all of that stuff. And I said to him, what are you talking about, Joe? What do you mean? And he said to me, oh, you know, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And he said, then he began to explain, well, total depravity, I didn't have any trouble with that, to be honest. I knew my heart. <laughs> And if you're a Christian, if you have any idea of what you were and how you needed to be saved, I trust you wouldn't have any trouble with that either. But then he came to unconditional election, election, that God would choose those who would be saved. And, and I said to him, no, I, I can't buy that. That's not fair. God, that wouldn't be fair. If God would did that, it wouldn't be fair. God's fair. And he, amazingly enough, Brother Joe dropped it. He didn't go after me, you know, tooth and nail, hammer and tongs. He, he dropped it. And then, because I was a, a Christian, a young Christian, reading my Bible, and I come across this, Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What's this? First uh, Peter chapter 1, that do we... Uh, chosen according to foreknowledge. Oh, well, there is foreknowledge. Oh, well, of course. Uh, what's, but these words I kept coming across in my Bible, I had never really considered them before. And so with some time of, rec of uh, wrestling with God, I came to see this is a great God. This is a mighty God. And this is an awful sinner. And if I'm ever going to be saved... It's going to be by God doing something that I could never do for myself. And if the initiative is with God, then the end is with God. 
And what a blessing that is. And my whole way of looking at the world, at my salvation, at my Bible, at God himself, was radically changed for the better. And, and instead of thinking of God as some being out there that was biting his nails and waiting for me to choose him and to do something, and that if I, uh, with my sovereign will, decided to do something, then it would mess up all his plans. In fact, little another biographical note in this Bible study we had with Brother Joe leading. At one point I prayed, and this is early on, uh, Father, I pray, this is a prayer that I had heard in growing up in, in the church that I was in. I pray that we will not mess up your plans. <laughs> and this Brother Joe chimed in right after I said amen and said, Father, I thank you that we can never mess up your plans. <laughs> and... I was looking for a hole in the, in the concrete floor with tiles on it to, to hide in, but uh, there was no such hole. And anyway, but I began to see that he, this was the God of the Bible, that we could not mess up his plans, that he, that no one can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? And this great God, I began to understand more of who he was and who I was and bow before him lost in wonder love and praise and the reason I start with this biographical sketch is this that that was so amazing to me it was so marvelous a time and if you perhaps some of you can go back in your own history and think of when that light dawned on you of who God is and who you were and how marvelous that was many, many of us that was something we, we can look back and track that down. But some of you grew up in this church. Some of you perhaps grew up hearing that, yeah, God's on his throne and he's sovereign and, and you're a worm of the dust and you are dead in trespasses and sins. And so this is kind of like nothing new to you. Oh, well, there we go again. I want you to stop also and take a step back and think, this is really marvelous. That if I'm saved, if I'm ever going to be saved, it's not something I do. The key is not in my pocket for me to open the door and get out whenever I feel like it. It's in God's hands. And if I'm going to be saved, it must come from Him. What can I do? There's only one thing you can't do. Is go to Him and cry to Him. And you'll find that he has said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And he has also said, he who comes to me, I'll never cast him out. And so you go to him and you then bow lost in wonder, love and praise. He, he sought me and drew me to seek him. So I want us to be refreshed in our understanding of these doctrines of God's amazing grace. Now, I consulted with the elders, and it seems that this is something that has not been specifically addressed for decades. I know Pastor Martin taught a series on it way, 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 way back, but. Uh, uh, I can't think of anything lengthy, Steve, that's been done, or you know, yeah. maybe so, a message here and there. So anyway, it's, uh, it's perhaps time for a refresher course for some, or maybe first time through 
for others. And so let me just also begin by way of introduction. Another introductory point is just a word of, about terminology. Uh, you probably would go for a long time here at Trinity Baptist Church without hearing the word Calvinism uh, referred to. I, I think since I've been back from the Philippines, maybe it's been mentioned a couple times, maybe once from my own lips. But um, what, there's a reason for that. We don't use this terminology a lot because it has some freight, some baggage with it. And some people think of it in a negative way, Calvinism. Some people then think, well, you're following a man and you're just uh, whatever Calvin said you, you go along with. Well, that's not the case. And we're not followers of men here. Uh, anybody, we follow well, one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. We follow him in his word. We follow him according to the apostles and prophets, the scriptures. And if anything is not in the scriptures, we don't want to teach it. And if we ever teach something that you think is not in the scriptures or contradicts the scriptures, you come to us. And if I ever say anything, and I've said this in the Philippines, I think I've said it here, if I ever say anything that you don't see in your Bible, don't believe it. I think all of our elders would say the same. I see them nodding. Don't buy it. We're not your gods. Don't put us on a pedestal. We follow what God himself has said in the scriptures. And so are these things, these doctrines of grace, as I prefer that term, uh, to Calvinism, are these in the scriptures? And that's what we want to see, yes, they are. So we're not going to generally use the term Calvinism, uh, the five points of Calvinism. But if, if ever I slip up and use that word, uh, don't, you know, go back in attack mode. Uh, just listen. Listen to the scriptures and what they have to say. All right. So today we're going to start with the first of these five points of doctrine, which deal with our salvation, basically. And I'm going to give it uh, th this point of total depravity. I'm going to give you four points about the first point. First of all, then the importance of this doctrine. Secondly, the meaning of it. Thirdly, the implications of it. And lastly, the application. So the importance, the meaning, the implications, and the applications. Now, in terms of importance, forgive me, if the temperature dips below 60, my nose runs. So forgive me if I have to constantly uh, revert to my handkerchief. The importance of it. Well, doctrinally, this is the foundation of our understanding of our salvation. How are you saved? What do you need to do to be saved? What is important for your salvation? Uh, what's man's problem that he needs to be saved from? And there are historically three answers to this question. One answer is that, well, man doesn't really need to be saved. He's not really sick. And that's out and out what, what is called historically Pelagianism. And if I could, I don't have a chalkboard here, and I should have given you a handout. Maybe I'll prepare it for next time and, and give you two weeks worth. But I have in my diagram, in my notes here, a diagram, and the Pelagianism is basically the man is there smiling. And he's happy, and he's got no real problems. What? 
Do you read your newspaper or your newsfeed? Uh, Pelagianism, though, basically says man's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. No real need for salvation. That's Pelagianism. And there, this man Pelagius, actually, in he was an English monk back in the, I forget, 4th, 5th century, sometime like that. Uh, he actually taught that. You're basically okay. And you can choose to follow God. And if you do, he'll pat you on the back and say, job well done. I'm a, I appreciate you. And that's the condition of man under Pelagian. It does that fit. I mean, not only, just before we even look at the Bible, it doesn't match what we see in the world around us. The second answer to the question, what is man's problem, is that, well, man is sick. And so if, if you saw the face in my diagram here, it would be like this. You know, like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling the greatest today. I've got uh, some bug and I'm, uh, I really need help. But he's not dead. He can, he can go and take the medicine. He can uh, go to the doctor. He can uh, do certain things to help himself. This man is, yeah, he's got a problem, but he's not hopeless because he has certain things that he can resort to. That's Arminianism or semi-Pelagianism, if you want to use historical terms. Yeah, man's got a problem. But uh, he's able to take the medicine. He can do his part, would be what they would say. But then, and here, it was what I would say is biblical Christianity, Calvinism, if you will. The answer is, no, man is dead. Man can't help himself. Man can't take the medicine. In fact, he's beyond medicine. If you went to a doctor with this person, he would say, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for this patient. He's dead. Call the undertaker. Uh, you came to the wrong shop here. You came to the hospital. You needed to go to the undertaker. And so if you wanted to look at the, my diagrams, got X's for eyes and, you know, it's um, no, this person and this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we're going to see. But you see, what I'm saying here is, this is a foundation for our whole understanding of our salvation. If you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm really, okay, I've got a problem, but I, I, all I need is a little help. Then you don't understand yourself. You don't understand your condition. It's like Brian Borgman tells in, in uh, one of his books about doing a Bible study in prison, in a prison, and uh, he, he dealt with this point. And one of the prisoners said, I, I could change any time I want. And so Pastor Borgman just asked him, so how many times have you been in here? He said, well, this is my third time. Uh, for the same offense, yeah. But any, I can change any time. <laughs> sure you can. Uh, and we're going to see what the Bible says when we come to our next heading, the meaning of the doctrine. But uh, as we seek to understand this as the foundation of our salvation, let me just say this personally. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, 
Don't think of yourself as, well, I got a problem, yeah, maybe in my marriage, maybe in my job, maybe in my uh, home life, or maybe in my own personal existence uh, all by myself. I have problems, yeah. I get depressed, I, get, I have problems, but I, 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 can, I can handle it. You don't really understand your condition. Because honestly, even if maybe you can stop drinking through AA, Maybe you can uh, have some certain behavior modification, but you can't really change your heart. God can. And that's the good news of the gospel. You say, well, that starts with bad news. Well, yeah, that's what Paul did in the book of Romans, as we have seen. It's not what you can do, but there's one who did it all. And so if you don't see that, to be honest, you'll never really come to Christ. You need to get so low in seeing yourself as what you really are that you'll cry out in desperation to the only one who can save you. And so that's why it's important. But then secondly, <clears throat> the meaning. What does this doctrine teach? Let me state it negatively and then positively. Uh, some people take this phrase, total depravity, and it sounds pretty drastic, and it really is, but it's not as drastic as some people make it sound or make it say. It doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be. And we look around us and we look at people, and God has restrained evil in society. And he's put several institutions in place to restrain sin, law, government, family, and even a sense of shame, a conscience, which people try to deaden, people fight against their conscience, but God has put these things by common grace in our society and in the heart of man to restrain evil, to restrain sin. So when we say total depravity, it doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be, as bad as the devil, who is pure evil. We're not saying that. Sin, thankfully, is restrained in society. And secondly, we're not saying that man can do nothing good in any sense. Uh, we do see unconverted people involved in benevolent concerns whether for the handicapped or for uh, relief of, of hunger and so on. We see people involved in praiseworthy acts <clears throat> of kindness and benevolence. My illustration that I use of this, and I don't know if I've used it before here, I remember as a, as a student again <clears throat> with my first car, which I bought from my dad for, I think, $100, Driving back to New Jersey from Delaware on an icy day and the radiator had a hose burst. And I'm, so I'm trying to get back to the campus and went around a curb on an exit ramp too fast. Over, went over the curb, didn't hit anything thankfully, but now the car, I couldn't back it off of this curb. And the guy behind me was a hippie, a hippie. I mean, this is the 70s. Got out of his stop, got out of his car, said, OK, you back up and I'll push the front end off. And this guy got 
in front of my car, pushed it up and over the curb as I'm backing up. And I went back, and no damage to the car except for the burst hose, and I did manage to get to a gas station and got it fixed. But uh, this hippie helped me. Was he a Christian? No, but he was a helper. He did an act which to me was very praiseworthy <laughs> of kindness. And so we do see unconverted people doing good deeds, good in many senses. So we're not saying that man is as bad as he could be, and we're not saying that man can do nothing good in any sense. Uh, so don't get us wrong when we talk about total depravity. What are we saying? Well, we're saying what the Bible says, that sin affects every area of man's being, every aspect, every faculty, nothing exempted. Man is, in a sense, poisoned by sin in every area. Let's just think of some areas that the Bible talks about. How about the body? Well, you know, you, you get older, you know that your body is not perfect. And you may be a bodybuilder with uh, you know, six-pack abs and, and biceps that bulge and all of the rest. But not too much longer, your back's going to start bothering you or something's going to hit you. And you realize your body is not perfect. But I'm not talking about physical ailments. What I'm talking about is how your body becomes a member, and we've seen this in Romans, that is used for sin. But this is what Paul says, Romans 7, 18, and I'm just going to quote a few verses here. And I'm going to read them out of my notes for the most part. If you want to look them up, I will give the references. Romans 7, 18, Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Flesh, okay? Flesh is your... the your sinful nature, but it's, it's also connected with your body. Ephesians 2, 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And we have to acknowledge that there are certain sinful desires, desires that come are closely connected with our flesh. Sexual desires, desire for food. These are good things that are created by God, but the flesh wants more than what is pleasing to God and drives us into sin. So there are fleshly aspects to sin. The body, the mind. We just read in Ephesians 2, 3, uh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Pelagius thought, well, the mind's you know, perfectly capable of reasoning its way through anything. An Arminian, semi-Pelagian, would say, well, you know, at least you can think straight and you can reason with a sinner. And the Calvinist, excuse the term, uh, Biblically speaking, what does it say about our mind? Is our mind affected by sin? Is the mind somehow derailed from thinking straight and going on track in the right direction? Well, let's look at what Scripture has to say. 
And some of these things we've seen in the book of Romans as we've gone through, Romans chapter 3. And I, let's turn there. I want you to see uh, this description as Paul collates material from the Old Testament. He says about, of course, the, the Jews are under, uh, the Gentiles are under sin. But he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who understands. Well, wait a minute. I've got a PhD. Well, wait a minute. I've got an IQ of 150. There's none who understands. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. The mind is affected by sin. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, and again here flesh, a uh, body affected by sin, sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, set their minds. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mr. Pelagius, I'm sorry you got it wrong. Man is not healthy and saying, okay, God, I'm going to serve you today. I'm going to really do a good job for you. Cannot please God. Cannot seek God, cannot understand, but is set on the flesh, is hostile towards God. So the Bible does not praise man's thinking ability and say, well, you know, you can think your way out of this. You can reason your way. We evolve enough and somehow we'll get to the place where we can sort it all out. No. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Facing the reality of what man is apart from Christ. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, as we preach the gospel, we acknowledge and we remember that the people who are not yet Christians, as we proclaim the gospel, their minds are blinded. And unless God moves, they're not going to see it. Oh, oh, but but I, I'm the best preacher. Oh, I can. I am gonna get through to them. No, it's not you. Of course, it doesn't mean we are 
lackadaisical in our preaching and haphazard and just say, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, case of raw, raw. If anybody's going to be saved, well, yeah, it's God's doing. So, no, we're not lazy about it. We seek to preach as we ought for the glory of God, but we acknowledge if anything's going to happen, it's not because of us. It's God's doing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. So man's mind is seriously affected. 1 Corinthians 2.14. And as we're going through these things, of course, I'm talking about me and you. We acknowledge, <laughs> wow, if I'm a Christian, God did something amazing. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, that is a man outside of Christ, a man who's just born in Adam and living in Adam, outside of the power and the, uh, of the gospel and the spirit, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And notice, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or examined or understood, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have, and I would add by grace, the mind of Christ. Cannot understand, cannot, no ability to understand. And so, what we're talking about when we speak of total depravity is man is affected by sin in his body, in his mind, his understanding. But furthermore, also in his affections. Look at 2 Timothy 3.1. And again, there are more passages I could turn to than I'm using. But 2 Timothy 3.1 is pretty clear. Apart from Christ, what do we learn about men's affections? But realize this, that in the last days, 2 Timothy 3.1, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, <clears throat> treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied his power, and avoid such men as these. Men will be in the last days, but avoid them now. In other words, guess what? Since Paul wrote this, we are in the last days until the Lord Jesus returns. Men will be, and they are. What do they love? Well, you can tick it off here. Love self. Love money, love pleasure, unloving in other areas, disobedient to parents. You would think there would be natural love, but there's an enmity there. Not lovers 
of God. Their affections are seriously damaged. Yes, they're dead in sin when it comes to affections. That's why God has to instruct his people, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil. It's not something to toy with. It's not something to sneeze at and just cover up. We need to have enmity, not with God, but with evil. And the will. And here's the great battle. Men want to leave the will free. Free will. Now, okay, we're going to deal with the will. But uh, is the will free to choose God? And that's really the bottom line issue. Is the will free to choose God and ultimate good? The Arminian and the Pelagian will say, of course. I remember, and forgive me if I inject various biographical notes into this, but it, it's, it, <laughs> it's something I wrestled with. When I first came to understand these things, my grandmother was living with us at home, and as a very young, zealous Christian, I wanted to teach my grandmother, who was a professing Christian uh, for many years, and uh, she said, oh no, that would make us robos. That was her way of saying robots. Uh, no. If you don't have Christ, in a way, you're a robot, always marching in the wrong direction. It's only Christ who can set your will free. Now, of course, when we talk about the will, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that you always choose what you like. I remember, and I perhaps have mentioned this here, I remember going to the ice cream snow cone uh, shop in New Orleans on our way home Wednesday night, and there was this one snow cone shop on River Road coming back to what became River Ridge from downtown New Orleans. We went to First Baptist Church New Orleans, and this snow cone shop had 100 flavors. Now, my sister like to choose different flavors and experiment. I like chocolate. I would always choose chocolate. Now, what made her choose different flavors and experiment? And what made me always choose chocolate? It was what our inclinations were. It was our nature. We chose what we liked. Don't you? You know, I offer you some... Uh, Ampalaya, which I've mentioned here before, bitter gourd. Uh, and you say, no, thank you. I offer you a juicy steak and you say, yes, please. Well, why? Because of your inclinations and desires. The problem of the will is this. Man's inclinations are bent, are twisted, are decidedly inclined in the wrong direction. And this is... This was the unanimous teaching of Bible believers at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther had no problem with it. In fact, he wrote a whole book, The Bondage of the Will. And I tackled that book years ago and never got far because I guess his style was too German for my uh, American <laughs> taste. But uh, there it is, The Bondage of the Will. And this is not just Martin Luther. It's not just John Calvin. It's Bible. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, John eight thirty four. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. He can't set himself free. He can't break his chains. That's what we sang at the opening of our adult Bible class. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard, his spots? Can he? Well, leaving the Ethiopian aside, let's think of leopards. Oh, I'd like, I'd like stripes today. You know, I want to be a tiger today. Will the leopard suddenly change his spotted fur for striped fur? And, of course, the answer to this rhetorical question is, don't be ridiculous. That's crazy. Well, then the follow-up question is, then, or statement rather, conclusion, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And when he says you, he's not saying, well, some of you are accustomed to doing good, just hang in there. And some of you are accustomed to doing evil, well, that's the way you are. What he's saying is, y'all, all y'all <laughs> are accustomed to doing evil. What are you going to do about that? Can you change yourself? Are you like Pelagius saying, well, I'm really not accustomed to doing evil. I'm really good. Are you like Pelagius, who says, Arminius, who says, yeah, I know I got a problem, but I can fix it with God's help. No. With Jeremiah, we say, nope, Ethiopian can't change his skin. Leopard can't change his spots. Without God, it, it, without God doing something radical, not just helping me do something, it's hopeless. John 6, is really the ultimate statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the problem of the will is that it's in bondage. No one can come. And so as we seek to understand then what this doctrine of total depravity is saying is that man left to himself, man by himself, is hopeless. He can't change himself. He can't fix himself. He can't even take the medicine that God might be uh, supplying him. Well, God did what he can. And now uh, it's up to you. You need to do what your part is, and then you'll be saved. You know, God, here's the, the chasm, and God makes the bridge 90% across, and you have to make the final leap. No. Unless God does something to you, in you, you won't be saved. The bottom line, the ultimate in your salvation is not, well, I did it, I chose, I have decided. Of course, you must decide, yes. Yes, you must choose this day whom you will serve, yes. But where's that going to come from? If you're accustomed to doing evil. If you love evil. If you are one who is at enmity with God. It's going to come from him. And then who gets the glory? All glory goes to him. Well, the implications, thirdly, the third <coughs> heading here, the implications of the doctrine. Well, the legal problem is this. Man is guilty before God, legally. We go to God's court. 
Man has no good works to commend himself to God. He can't say, well, look here, you know, uh, we'll put it in the balance. Okay, I did a few bad things, but, you know, really the good stuff I've done, just look at all. I'm a good guy. I've done some good things. I've done more good things than bad things. So I'm in. It's not the way it works. Sin means you're a, you're a slave of sin. How about your good works? Say, so, well, you've got good over here. Let, let's examine that. According to the Bible, what's good is what's done for God's glory. If it's not done for God's glory, it's sin. 1 Corinthians 10.31, perhaps you're familiar with the verse, therefore, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Why well, did this good thing? For whose glory? Um... Well, for me, I did it. Who else should get praise for it? Then it's not good. Because it's not done for the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So any, quote, good deed done, not for God's glory, is not good, Ultimately. It has to be done also according to the rule, which is God's law. And when we examine much of the good that people do, well, there's failing along the way somewhere, because James 2.10 says, if you keep all the law and yet fail in one point, you're guilty of all. And so when the man acknowledges, okay, I've done some bad, but they've got good here, any bad, James tells us, you've broken God's law. You're a lawbreaker. The rule has been broken. And so the legal problem this doctrine tells us is that man is guilty before God, that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, filthy rags. That's our good works. How about our bad works? <laughs> the good are filthy rags. What about the bad? And so yet all the same people come to God and say, look at the good deeds. And God says, what? Filthy rags? You expect me to be impressed? God's not impressed with your filthy rags. There's a legal problem. There's also a moral problem. Uh, there's legal problem of guilt. There's a moral problem of total inability. Total inability. Man, therefore, is totally unable to come to God, to please God. It is impossible. That's what we read. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. No man can come to me. It's, it's ability. Total inability. Man does not have as was taught by liberal theologians back even in the 19th century, a spark of divinity. No. Dead in sin. Unable to move to God. And then we have descriptive statements of this inability. Uh, Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, that's pretty graphic. Um, Captives of sin and the devil. John 8, 34. Uh, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, 
John 8.34. Let me just read these. I didn't print these out in my notes, so I need to, to turn there. I did look them up again, but I don't have them all absolutely word for word memorized. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Romans 6, that we've seen more recently in our studies in the book of Romans. Romans 6, 16 to 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, two possibilities, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And if you'd like to look it up there, I remember a very powerful sermon of Pastor Martin on this passage. Whose slave are you? Whose slave are you? You got two possibilities. Slave of sin. That's what we're born as, or slave of righteousness. And that only comes by God doing something to set you free. And so there's a description. Captives of sin and the devil, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. I might have to cut short some of the verses I have in my notes for the sake of time, 2 Timothy 2, 25, 26, uh, Paul tells Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, how is it going to happen that they escape the devil's captivity? Well, I'm just going to think it through and I'm just going to choose the right thing. No, that God may grant. God is the one who takes the initiative. And if he doesn't, we're lost. But thanks be to God, he does. God may grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And so they're in his snare. They're blind and deaf. Mark 4, 11 and 12. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables in order that while seeing... They may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. They're blind and deaf. They see, yeah, but they don't get it. They hear, yeah, comes their eardrums, vibrates the stirrup and all those things that are in there. They don't get it. Unless, unless God grants it to them. Blind and deaf uninstructable, unable to understand. We read these verses, 1 Corinthians 2.14, uh, that they're unable to 
ascertain, to examine these things. Romans 3.11, uh, there, there's an inability. They cannot understand. There's none who understands. They're sinful by nature, by birth and practice. As David wrote in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis 6.5, that the heart of man was so given to wickedness that they only did evil continually. And so the problem is really deep. The problem is pervasive. Total inability. Total depravity. Now as we wrap up then this morning uh, and seek to apply this, first of all personally and we have some here, I'm no doubt. Maybe you've attended this church for years. Maybe since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. And you're here. And maybe you say, well, you know, I, I, I get it. I think I understand what they're saying, but nothing's happened. You cannot change yourself. Oh, well, I'll do what everybody else does. Acting the part isn't going to save you. Only God can save you. What, 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 but, but, I mean, I can't do anything. Yeah. But you can go to him who does everything. You cannot change yourself. You cannot save yourself. But I know one who can. And he has said, come unto me. So what are you waiting for? You go, you lay it before him. He knows you altogether. Here I am, helpless, without one plea. But the only plea I have is that there's a Savior who died for sinners. And here I am. Look at me, I'm a sinner. Without one plea. But that that blood shed for sinners is the blood I need for me. And all who come to him, he never cast them out. And so you go to him. You can't do it. You can't do it. I've been trying hard. You can't do it. Go to him. Lay it before him. Lay yourself at his feet. You know, I've read this sort of statement and I can't pinpoint where I even read it. But nobody has ever gone to hell who has laid themselves at the feet of Jesus and cried out for salvation. They, one reason why I don't use the terms Calvinism frequently or don't use it regularly is this. Someone made the statement, I, th I think it might have been Ernie Reisinger, that he was talking about Calvinism one time and somebody said to him, his, his uh, conversation partner, well, you know, that means that uh, God kicks to hell everybody who wants to be saved. No. You come to him, he won't kick you to hell. The problem is, people are determined to go there by their sin. And God reaches out in mercy and plucks brands from the burning. That's what it means. You go to him. Personally, theologically, this prepares us for the next four lessons. 
See, when you understand, I can't do anything for myself. It's not of me. I'm totally uh, unable to save myself. I'm totally given to sin. Then if, I, if there's any hope for me, it all comes from Christ. And so unconditional election. I prefer the term particular redemption to limited atonement, but there it is, L. Irresistible grace. Boy, oh boy, I'm thankful that grace is irresistible. Because I was kicking against the goads for a long time. And perseverance and preservation of the saints. If I'm going to get to glory, oh yeah, I will persevere to the end. But I know it's him keeping me. And I rest on the everlasting arms. These things flow from the fact that you can't do it yourself. God did it. God does it. And so he's our hope. We're not like those described in Ephesians without God and without hope in the world. You have Christ. You have hope forever and ever. Theologically, this prepares us. All comes from God. A new creation, a new birth, resurrection to new life. And then lastly, evangelistically, we need this doctrine because if men are dead, we're not going to try to manipulate them to make a decision. I may have told you the story. As an academy student, I was invited to preach at my parents' church when the pastor was away. And this church had, uh, as a regular practice, an invitation. And that was what they did. Well, I'm going to preach there. So I'm going to give an invitation. What? You, Pastor Steve, gave an invitation? Yeah. It said something like this. It's the practice in this church, after hearing the word of God, to uh, in invite those who would like to, uh, make, to, to profess Christ to come to the front. But listen, these chairs have been in the front of the church for years, and they're not saved, except for the deacons who sit there. And you don't have to come here to be saved. You can be saved right in your seat. You need to just trust in Christ right where you are. Well, the pastor who was away listened to the sermon on tape and he called me up. He said, can we get together? Sure. He said to, to me, well, you know, Steve, it sounded like you didn't want anybody to come forward. I said, well, I didn't. <laughs> and you know what he said to me? You don't understand the psychology of it. That's a direct quote. I remember it. You don't understand the psychology, but I do. And here's the point. When we preach the gospel, it's not up to us to psychologically manipulate people and trick them into doing something that they can do so that we can say, I've got results. It's up to God to save. And so we preach the gospel with confidence that he uses it. We spread abroad the light of the gospel. And wonderfully, marvelously, amazingly, God works by his grace and draws sinners to himself. This creates confidence in the evangelist that I'm not doing my thing and it's all up to me somehow to do the right thing to manipulate people. But I tell God's message, God's glorious gospel of salvation full and free in Jesus Christ. And God amazingly uses it. 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. And so, brethren, don't be afraid to share the gospel. Don't be afraid, well, you know, maybe they're not elect. I don't know. Maybe they are. You just spread the good news. Spread that gospel net. And you know how Peter there, when uh, they were in the boat and casting the net and could not catch anything, and Jesus said, cast it on the other side. And lo and behold, they had so many fish in the net, they just couldn't call, haul them in. We just cast the gospel net. Who knows? Maybe today, maybe today, there'll be such a swarm of fish, we will say, what are we going to do with them all? And so we keep spreading the gospel net and praying that God will bless. And with hope that he'll do it in his way, in his time, as we seek to obey. And so with evangelism, we don't have some cold-hearted idea, well, it's all, dude, we just set it out there. No, we spread that gospel net and we plead with God, own it and bless it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for saving us in spite of our sin, in all, all of our ugliness, unlovableness, while we were yet enemies, while we were helpless, you sent your Son, you called us out of darkness, you changed our hearts, caused us to be born again with a new life. Repentance and faith, your gifts, you gave us. And we ask that you would do the same again today as your word is preached from the book of Romans, from Genesis own it. Bring those fish into the net. And for those of us, your people, as we've reviewed these things, increase our songs of praise, that our voices would be all the more lifted up to give glory to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.